and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. On today's episode, I'm joined by Yotam Ottolenghi, the Jerusalem-born, London-based, world-renowned chef, restaurateur, and best-selling cookbook author. Yotam had always been expected to follow his parents into the world of academia, and it wasn't until he turned 30 that he decided to follow his true passion for food, enrolling in the prestigious Cordon Bleu Culinary School in London. From there, he became a pastry chef in some of London's top restaurants before meeting Sami Tamimi, a Palestinian chef who became his business partner. They created a small deli in Notting Hill called Ottolenghi, and the rest you could say was history. Yotam's signature mix of Middle Eastern and Mediterranean flavors showcasing mainly vegetables soon became a sensation, sparking what can only be described as a culinary movement where plates were now about sharing and the popularity of ingredients like pomegranate seeds, sumac and tahini in British supermarkets was dubbed the Ottolenghi effect. Now he's the owner of six delis and restaurants, a Guardian columnist, TV presenter and he's back with his eighth cookbook, Flavor. As you'll hear in this episode, Yotam won't visit a destination unless it has great food. And his food is continuously inspired by his extensive global travels. They just feed each other. And so his travel diaries are also food memory diaries, and they're sure to make your mouth water. So from Israel and Bali to Greece and Mexico, here are the travel diaries of a culinary legend, Yotam Ottolenghi. Yotam Otlengi, welcome to the Travel Diaries. Thank you so much for coming on today. How are you? I'm feeling good and I'd like to say thank you for having me on your show. Oh, it's so much my pleasure. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm a huge fan of your recipes. Um, whenever I go to a dinner and they say that they're doing a, a an Ottolenghi style spread, I'm always like, yes, that's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like um, an appreciation of travel is just so imbued in your food. Yeah, so I I, I have this kind of, um, uh, little motto saying, you know, I never, I would never try travel anywhere that doesn't have good food. That's the that's mm-hmm. the the number one requirement because I try to draw inspiration from whenever wherever I go. So every meal is a potential recipe. I'm just like a, I'm a recipe hoarder. So uh, so that's why I you know it, in pre COVID days where I could travel as much as I wanted to. Uh, I, I, you know, I used to keep a little, uh, a little notebook in which I write what I have, and that becomes a blueprint for for a recipe or an an, an idea for a recipe. Mm. And so, your mother is German, and your father is Italian, and you grew up in Israel in Jerusalem. So, you know, a real cultural mix. Did you feel like you had an international identity, kind of from a very from the very beginning? No, because Israel uh, has, when especially when I was growing up in the seventies and eighties, uh, was full of immigrants. So everybody had an in, from in the Jewish community. I'm not talking about the Muslim community, but in the Jewish community, everyone was a 
first or second generation immigrants, almost everyone. Mm -hmm. So it didn't feel so unusual to have uh, a mixed cultural background uh, in that respect. And, and that's very much the picture of the city. Uh, you've got the, the old Palestinian population that has been there for a very long time. And then you've got more recent Jewish immigrants that have populated the city in the 19th and 20th centuries sorry, in the 20th and, 20, and 21st centuries. And, that, and, and uh, that's really the situation. It, it, it's a city of immigrants, so there's like so many cultural experiences. It's unbelievable. And I feel that I've really benefited that from having um, a solid European background at home. You know, like my mom's cooking has always been very much inspired by European tradition, European Central European cooking, although she's super mm -hmm. adventurous and cooks everything. And my father is pure. There is this kind of purest Northern Italian approach, really good ingredients, not too much messed up with, not mixing up big flavors, kind of almost the opposite to the way I cook. And, uh, and then there was the, the, you know, everything outside, which was all these Jewish immigrants from all over the world. Uh, and then the Palestinian food, which is still food that I probably like the most, which is that what was served in restaurants and markets in Jerusalem when I was growing up. So how would you characterize Palestinian food, would you say? Well, it's a really complicated thing. So Sami Tamimi, who is one of my business partners, and Tara Wigley, who is another colleague of mine, have written a book called Palestine recently, which is all about Palestinian food. And the complexity of this food is comes through every page in the book. Uh, as a kind of, um, you know, people would recognize many dishes from the fami being familiar with uh, Lebanese food uh, in Lebanese restaurants in, in the UK, we, you know, falafels and hummus and baba ganoush. And, but this is just the surface. It's a much more complex and regionally divided cuisine uh, that de depends whether you go to the West Bank or whether, or even which part of West Bank, to Gaza, to Galilee, to different parts of the uh, uh, country and where Palestinian mm -hmm. people live and you really get uh, really incredible things. A, a traditional dish is called uh, makluba which is a cake, a savory cake made of a uh, layer of vegetables and chicken and then rice which you tip over when it's ready which is a, a really wonderful mm -hmm. Palestinian classic. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a typical kind of celebration dish but all sorts of things with pastries, with bulgur wheat, slow cooked and, 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 and shortly cooked salads and it's it's, it's a very, very interesting, complex cuisine, and, and I've, 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 I've learned to love it as, as I was growing up. Mm. And did that feature as some of your key early culinary memories? Yes, because we used to travel. So Jerusalem was a much more peaceful place uh, when I was younger. And when mm. I was young, um, the Intifada, which was the first uh, Palestinian uprising, only happened in the early 80s. So up until that point, there was much less conflict uh, between Israelis and Palestinians, at least on the surface. And there was a lot of bubbling tension, but you could really feel that, that uh, there was a kind of a, a very short period where things were actually relatively stable. And so we used to travel a lot to go and eat in restaurants all over the West Bank, in Naples or in, or in Jericho or in Hebron, in different places, like Ramallah, Bethlehem. And, they, and I really that did get exposed to, uh, to those foods quite early on. Uh, we used to sit at the table and, if, uh, you know, a typical, very uh, general Palestinian mezes would arrive with fried cauliflowers and all sorts of interesting pickles. And then, yeah, one version of a, 
an aubergine salad, like what we call baba ganoush, but there's a whole range of variations and really good tahini and labne, and then after that, grilled meat. So I uh, and and uh, and slow cooked uh, uh, pulses like grains and lentils. I mean, it was really uh, mm, very, me yeah, yeah. It makes me hungry just to talk about <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> So let's begin with the first chapter of your travel diaries. Yeah. Um, that's chapter one, which is your earliest childhood travel memory. Yeah, actually, I was thinking about that. Um, when I was really young, we used to go and spend time on the beach in the Sinai Desert. Again, quite a lot about the politics and the, 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 the geographics of the Middle East come, come in this conversation. But Sinai, the desert, was a massive piece of land that was um, taken over by Israel during the 1967 war uh, between Israel and Egypt. And in mm-hmm. 1978, it's, there was a peace accord between Israel and Egypt, and Sinai was, was gradually returned back to Egyptian control, and now it's, it's completely Egyptian. Uh, but during the 70s and early 80s, uh, it, it was still a, a, under Israeli control, so we could, you could just drive down um to 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 uh to Sinai and it was a very virginal um deserty landscape beautiful colors of red rocks and and you know no, hardly any vegetation and and the the red sea was just super beautiful and you could stop on a number of stops along the way on the red sea for to camp and there was Bedouins who were normally running these these sites where you could stop and put, pitch a tent and uh, you could get a meal from the local Bedouin um, population that would run like kind of semi-restaurants. And it was very, very, very basic. You know, the, the Red Sea with its incredible population of fish and uh, there's a wonderful reef all along the Red Sea with uh, aqua life. One of the best places in the world to snorkel and to dive, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And we did a lot of snorkeling. Uh, really, there's incredible, incredible, incredible uh, fish and algae and it's just fantastic. So we used to go there, spend a few days on the beach in a tent, just enjoying the sun, walks in the desert and 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 the Dead Sea, it was uh, the Red Sea, was truly remarkable. Oh, that sounds glorious! And and did you have a love of food from a young age, or did that come later? Would you say love of food? I've had from a young age, definitely. Uh, I, I've been considered quite a greedy little boy when I was growing up in my in, in the best possible way <laughs> with my family because I always wanted to go and you know have something to eat and and but not in a kind of a run of the mill kind of place i always wanted to i was quite drawn to different kinds of food so when whenever we traveled i was the first to try to uh, explore the different foods that were available and i had this obsession with fish and seafood uh which were not mm-hmm. the first thing you would get in jerusalem uh but whenever right. we travel i would i would always try and get some seafood and uh so prawns or or shellfish in general and and i because they're not kosher right they're not kosher no so they would be hard for you to get when you were living in yeah, the city. Yeah, it was hard to get. There was one restaurant in, in East Jerusalem that would serve them, and I, it was kind of like a birthday treat to go and eat there. <laughs> they had these amazing <laughs> prawns, very simply prepared with garlic and butter and lemon juice. And I will never forget that as a kind of a seminal experience. Whenever it was possible, I'd get my parents to to take me there. 
Um, and then if we went abroad, then as well, I would always try to. So I was a very keen eater. Uh, I was I wasn't one of those kids that were really naturally drawn to the kitchen. That came later. Uh, I did experiment a little bit with cooking when I was younger, but it was mostly I'd let my mom and dad cook for me. And then when I went to university in my early 20s, that's when I realized that nobody would cook for me anymore. So I had to, <laughs> I had to fend for myself. And that's when I really got uh, seriously into, into cooking. And some people who don't know your background might think that you might assume that you went to university to study uh, cooking, but actually you didn't. You you were set to go down a different path originally. Yes, I went to university to a more, uh, well, traditional, I want to say, but more, maybe more traditional in my family. So yeah, I went to, I studied um, uh, humanities, literatures, literature and philosophy. And I spent quite a few years in university being very serious about these subjects. I really enjoyed them and I was good at them. Uh, I finished my master's degree and I was not quite sure what I, what I was going to do next. And I, although I did enjoy, you know, the subjects, I found academia quite insular. I've, I always thought, I always had this uh, memory of, uh, fi- finishing my uh, my dissertation for my master's degree, uh, which was on com- some kind of obscure subject about representation in arts, and um, and I handed my supervisor the the final draft of my dissertation, and I and I printed a few more copies. You know, I was quite proud of it. It was a long, you know, I worked on it for quite a long time and gave some. A few to my families and friends, etc. And to this day, I doubt anyone read it apart from my supervisor. <laughs> you know, it was, it's so niche and so obscure. And I think this kind of encapsulates my university experience. It was really interesting, but it didn't really resonate with anyone apart from probably myself and a couple of other people who said discussing these topics at the university cafeteria. So. I think I needed a wider audience and I wanted to be engaged in a conversation with more than just myself and a couple of other people. And and food I felt is 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 that kind of place. So I've enjoyed cooking and then I enjoyed cooking for people and getting their feedbacks. And as opposed to food is such a way of connecting with people. Yeah, and the feedback is immediately again as opposed to university where everything takes so long and and the protracted processes. Like when you cook a good meal to a group of friends, you've got this kind of immediate uh, gratification with you know happy faces, uh, the oohs and the ahs, and it's just it's just that kind of thing. So I think that that really kept me going. Uh, and made me consider, okay, that might be a career, even though I did embark on it quite tentatively. I wasn't quite sure that if this is going to be my life's choice career, but I, I've, I've come to London and I took a cookery course and then I started working in restaurants. And although it was really, really hard because I was kind of a late bloomer and I wasn't really a, you know, kind of a typical chef that started cooking at the age of 17. I really enjoyed that kind of sense of joy and recognition and and uh, and being able to get uh, that kind of sense of the appreciation that I haven't received before. Mm. So let's pause there and move on to chapter two of your travel diaries and that is the first place that you fell in love with. Where would that be? <laughs> um I, I do, we used to go to Florence a lot uh, when I was a child because my father 
was born in Florence. They came to, they have to, they had to leave Europe before the Second World War. So he had to, they left Italy when he was a very young child. But during my childhood, so in the 50s and 60s, before I was born, uh, my father and his parents kept on going to Italy. And and there was a, a small apartment in Florence that belonged to the family that they kept. And we used to go and stay in that apartment uh, in the summers sometimes uh, when I was a child. And um, this was an ongoing thing. I think we've been there a few times, maybe from the age of six or seven and then on to to, to, to my teens. And those, those visits to Florence really stuck to my mind i really did feel in love with this place with how different it was from where where we were growing up that kind of messiness of jerusalem and florence with its history but also very kind of solid european and northern italian restraint and i i loved the food and i loved the smells and i i you know we would make my dad would go out in the morning and get um focaccias from the bakery and and all sorts of interesting breads rolls that were uh, so fresh and delicious, and I've got this rosemary focaccia from the bakery, or or an schiacciata, which is another kind of flatbread that was topped with grapes and fennel seeds and some sugar, and mm. and those were things that really stuck to my mind in terms of flavors, but also the whole business of the of how different it was, how European and civilized it all seems, you know the the churches and the synagogues and the big squares and the and the galleries that we used to go and see the you know the old masters works and and i i loved everything about this city i still do i haven't been there for a few years but uh but it just stuck into my mind i think this was this is one of the first places that has definitely uh or oh, the ice cream the pistachio ice cream there was one place uh gelateria uh where we had went it was called perkeno and we used to go there and get pistachio ice cream and sit and it's just, you know, it's un- un- unforgettable. The most delicious experience. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from 
all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. If Yotam has inspired you to book your own Mediterranean adventure, the Thinking Traveller should be your first port of call. Founded 18 years ago by husband and wife duo Hugh and Rosella Bogier, their collection of luxury villas across Italy, the Greek islands and Corsica are some of the best properties out there for a villa holiday and come in all sizes, whether you're travelling as a couple or for a big family reunion. Their portfolio is highly curated to ensure both quality and exclusivity. You can't find these villas anywhere else, which makes them all the more special. I'm eyeing up one of their gorgeous waterfront villas in Sicily for a spring break next year. It's Rosella, the co-founder's homeland, and she has expertly selected the best spots on the island to stay, from the sandy beaches on the west coast to the charming town of Termina and the city of Syracuse in the east, one of Simon Calder's hidden gems on his episode last season. What's more, they offer loads of different unique activities that you can easily add on to your trip from cookery classes to guided local tours and even a helicopter trip over Mount Etna. Their team of local concierges are available during your stay to provide on-the-ground support so you can just relax. Booking a villa is a breeze. You can either call one of their villa specialists who'll help you pick the villa for you or you can book directly on their website, which is so easy to use and a real source of inspiration and wanderlust. Head over now to thethinkingtraveler.com forward slash travel diaries for a very special extra treat when you book an in-villa dining experience for you and your group with your very own private chef. How amazing is that? So head over to thethinkingtraveler.com forward slash travel diaries and book your villa today. Now let's get back to your time. It seems like all of these different experiences have informed your food philosophy. And having studied philosophy at university, what would you say your food philosophy is? It's complex. One? I mean, I, for me, it's. I always like to say I don't like um, I don't like processed food, and and I think when I say that, I don't necessarily. I mean that, of course, I don't like processed foods that you buy in a supermarket because I think it's always better to cook yourself. Uh, although I've done that many times myself, but the, what I mean is things that have been messed about with too much. And, and, and so I kind of position myself a little bit on the opposite camp, camp of um, very, very uh, elaborate cuisines of the kind of French tradition uh, that so for me, it's, I, I prefer food that has its origins in the home and is very doable. And when you smell something, you know exactly what it is, and it's connected to home cooking. I've, my recipes have not always been simple. I mean, people have, com- have accused me, and probably sometimes rightly so, by, by cooking complicated things. But that complication probably came from a long list of ingredients and not from 
techniques that were complicated. Mm-hmm. For me, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's food that really screams flavor and that is very approachable. You know, that's something that you know and that you want to eat again. And it's not like kind of, um, things that are processed and chopped up and, 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 and passed through sieves a million times until you really don't know what they are and where they, where, <laughs> what they, what they mean. I went to the Cordon Bleu Cookery School when I was going to London. I learned a lot. I really did learn a lot about the basics. But one of the things that I learned that I don't want to do is turn vegetables, you know, to take something that looks like one thing and turning it to turn it into something completely different for no apparent reason, just mm-hmm. because you want to kind of mm-hmm. uh, control it, if you see what I mean. So dicing a, a potato to to perfect sizes or turning a, a, a potato so they all look the same doesn't make doesn't make sense to me. I, I, I much more. I feel there's much more uh, merit to keeping things closer to the way they should be, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and and so a, a round vegetable stays round or at least wedges in my kitchen rather than being perfectly diced. Yeah, yeah. And the the popularity of of your food and your way of cooking and recipes has really redefined a way of eating and and some might say even transcended beyond that like I remember when Theresa May was the prime minister she said in an interview that she preferred your recipes to (laughs) Delia Smith and that was big news do you remember that (laughs) yeah 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 I I looked that up today and the first article that comes up it's a spectator article and it has a headline Theresa May's Ottolenghi revelation is gobsmacking. And it goes on to say that um, this is as clear an indicator as you can get that you're a cosmopolitan internationalist with a free and easy approach to immigration. Your TAM is not just a source of really good recipes, but an indicator of an entire socio-political outlook. So (laughs) do you agree with that? I don't think I can disagree. I wouldn't necessarily want to be seen as, as you know, necessarily like that. I mean, I don't want to be judged by the crowd of people who are, you know, the stereotypical crowd of people who follow me because I think it it kind of reduces the the the, the endeavor a little bit. I mean, it it what I try to do is cook really delicious food and present it to the world with the related stories that come with it. And I'm a huge collaborator. Like every book that I bring out is a collaboration with someone. Um, well, most of the books and telling the that person's story or telling particular stories of cultures and people that I meet is 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 kind of my mission. But I'm also aware that I've been adopted by, but yeah, but that kind of cosmopolitan group of people who travel the world and see, and I, and I myself am one of them because I do, I, I do travel a lot and I do draw my inspiration mm. from from all over. Uh, so I, I should feel flattered by by the idea that people that it resonates and for for whatever reason and if Theresa May likes to cook my food, I'd be you know I'm very happy about that. That's that's a compliment. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So moving on to chapter three, that is the place where you learned the most about yourself. Where would that be? Yeah, so that was Amsterdam. Um, after mm-hmm. I left Israel and before I moved to London, I spent two years in Amsterdam. And um, I went there for not, not, no really good reason. I mean, it's, it's a great city and I still love it uh, to this day. But uh, it was a kind of a mid-period in my life where I was not quite sure where I was heading. I, I, I went there with my 
boyfriend at the time, Noam, we went there to just kind of live somewhere else for a little while. And um, I finished my dissertation for univ- remotely for my university degree in Tel Aviv. Uh, went out clubbing a lot and really didn't really know what I, where I was heading. It was, it, was, it was a kind of existential crisis moment in my life. And, 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 and this is where I also started being a little bit more serious about food and cooking so i went to the markets and the supermarkets and bought ingredients and tried to play with them a bit more systematically i ordered from books for cooks in london uh julia's julia's child's book um about french cooking which is really the the very basic uh script manuscript for for cooking and i i thought okay well I'm not sure I'm going to be an academic or a journalist, which were the assumptions that I've had for a very long time. Uh, I wanted to, I'm not sure that this doing nothing is good for me, you know, going out clubbing every night either. And, yeah. uh, and, um, and I need to sort of find myself. And, and I did, and I did it. And I started to cook and really experiment and read, you know, kind of educate myself more about cooking. And it, and, it was a really useful waste of two of two years because uh, because I, I found out that uh, that I I should try this I should really try that and I and and those were so that was a very particular time and Dutch culture is not for particularly famous for its culinary achievements but there were really good ingredients there fish uh, you know and and cabbages and root vegetables that I could play with there and I learned a little bit about Indonesian food which is a, which has a connection to to uh, to Holland and so so it was a very very useful time for me to learn something even though it was it seemed a bit pointless and aimless at, at much much of it Mm, and it it changed your course eventually. It did, and and it's also a beautiful place. And there's something very open and very liberal and very uh, uh, hospitable about Dutch culture. And I think it does give you space to kind of uh, do things for yourself. And Amsterdam is such a wonderfully beautiful, civilized place, so you can just feel free to do things. And and I did. It's one of my favorite cities. You mention the Indonesian cuisine. If you visit, you must go for an Indonesian meal, wouldn't you say? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I would say that, but I'm not so sure I can stand behind that because your next question to me, I'll I, I'll tell you what it is already. Yeah, it's about my my all time favorite destination, city and yeah. hotel, and that really connects nicely to the um, to the Amsterdam experience. So I, the only time I had Indonesian food was in. Amsterdam. Well, I've had it in other places, but the first time I encountered it uh, seriously was in Amsterdam. And I guess what you have uh, in a similar way that you have um, kind of Indian food in 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 Britain is the kind of post-colonial remnants of of that history in food through mm-hmm. immigrants and through the local tastes. And it's a it's a kind of a sl- slightly different variation on that theme. So. A Dutch uh, t- uh, uh, Indonesian meal is not an Indonesian Indonesian meal, if you see what I mean. In the same way that you find in the UK, Indian meals are not authentically Indian. And I'm, I'm not going to cast judgment whether that's a good or a bad thing. I think it's just the way it is. And you get some some uh, versions are great. Some versions might not be that great. But last year I went to Bali uh, with my family for a literary festival that I was invited to. And I had some Balinese and Indonesian food 
uh, in situ, and it it was it was a revelation in the sense that I could I, I could I could see okay well I had some good Indonesian food before, I'm not undermining it, but it's never the same uh, as in the real place, and uh, because you don't get the you don't get the the intricate differences between the variations the tiny little details you just don't get those when you have it outside the country and that's true about every cuisine in every place so uh they're, they're tra- traveling in bali and trying those rice combinations you know where you have rice at the center of a plate and condiments sambals all around and cucumbers and salads and and fish and things that are and chili and and, and peanut sauces and things that are kind of related and have to do with it but but you know, come together so nicely when you have the whole thing in one sit- sitting. Mm. Uh, really came to life for me. So I, 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 I traveled to Ubud for the festival and got to stay at this incredible hotel that they put us up. Uh, my Carl, my husband Carl, and our two boys. Uh, it's called the Royal Peter Maha, which is a real old school hotel. It's not the Four Seasons. It's uh, it's it's beautiful and luxurious, but in an old school kind of way. I don't think it was renovated yesterday. I was spoiled rotten there. First of all, you know the room with the pool and all the pools in the hotel were stunning. It's like I think I always say to people that Ubud or Bali in general is like the land of swimming pools. <laughs> Wherever you go, there's a more there's a more beautiful swimming pool than the, than the one you swam with earlier. And there was um, and so photogenic. Yeah, holy holy. Spring water pool in the hotel, and then which is literally in the rocks. You know, you really are. You swim totally in the in the jungle, and then there was a lagoon pool, which was slightly warmer. But it's all kind of, you know, magazine material that you've never thought you're actually going to experience. And we went with our boys because you know we were invited to the festival, and I said to them, "You are you just don't know how spoiled rotten you you guys are because you know you're four and seven and you've already been to the most beautiful place in the world. I mean, you're just super lucky. It took me to reach the age of 51 to get, to get there, and, and here you are. You have no idea how beautiful this is. You're so well-traveled. I was you know, reading various articles and interviews, and it seems like you really have traveled a huge amount of the globe. So with your, with your young kids, where are you most looking forward to showing them that they've not been yet? Well, gosh, where I, where I want to tra- take them is to different parts of Asia that I've been to, uh, to uh, northern India where I've traveled, to Japan, to uh, Vietnam. I mean, I would love to take them to all these places. I want them to grow up a bit because I think these experiences are slightly lost at the very early years, although they had a great time in Bali. I don't know how much of it they're going to actually remember. Yeah. Uh, but I really want to take them to all these places that, that I've been to. But I also want to take them to Mexico because I've never been to Mexico. And as you, you call me well-traveled. I don't think I'm really well-traveled until I've visited Mexico because I've uh, been in the company of so many people who love that country so much and have enjoyed its food to this incredible degree and allowed me to learn how to cook uh Mexican food to to a certain degree. I wouldn't say I'm a I'm a good Mexican cook, but I know a few things. Uh, so this is what I'd love to I'd love to explore it with them because I I wouldn't have the prior knowledge. I've never been, so I'd love to to kind of learn to uh, to know Mexico through 
my eyes and and their eyes as well.、Mm. So, so where do you always eat well? Where's a, the destination that you know that you'll always have the most exciting culinary experience? You know, I've had these experiences in in Malaysia and Vietnam, two countries、uh, in Southeast Asia that have just kept on giving. You know, wherever you know, the more I traveled in those countries, and I haven't traveled massively, but I've spent、uh, a week here, a week there. Uh, mm-hmm. There was just incredible foods too. Ma- Malaysia really is, I think, one of the most incredible food destination because it's made out of、um, three main cultures: the Malay, Chinese, and Indian, and all sorts of subcultures、uh, as well that are that are that are not covered by this、uh, generalization. But they come together in such interesting ways. So you know, you've got Chinese style noodle soups of all kinds, and then you've got the f- Indian flatbreads, the fried breads that you get, and then Malay、um, intensely spiced uh, uh, curries and of all of so all sorts. And it's just the most incredible、uh, country to travel. And I, I traveled there、uh, with Helen Go, who's a coll- collaborator of mine. And a colleague and a friend, and she took me,、mm-hmm. as someone who grew up in that country, and just showed me all the gems. I mean, nasi lemak, which is the the, the traditional、um, Malaysian breakfast, is just so such a wonderful. It's a coconut rice. It sounds so simple: coconut rice, a chili sambal, some uh, dried um, anchovies, fr- and、uh, and maybe a chicken and some cucumbers and egg. And it's just the most humblest thing, but when you put it all together and have it, it just makes so much sense that、uh, you, you totally fall in love with it.、Mm, sounds absolutely delicious. Part of the world that I've not yet been to, and it just—I think I'd just spend most of my time eating if I was there. <laughs> yeah, I think you. Well, you join the whole nation because that nation—they're famous for all the all the. All they do is eat. You just t- speak to a Malaysian person; they'll tell you all we do all day is eat. It's not a. It's not a、uh, overstatement. It really is. It's like sounds like my kind of country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so moving on to chapter five, that's your hidden gem, a, a much loved spot of yours that maybe our listeners might not know about.、Uh, yes, I'm. I've been there once many years ago with Carl. It's called. It's it's an island in Greece called Folegandros. Uh, it's a tiny island. I hope I don't spoil the island by spreading the word out. You can ride a scooter from one end to one end of it to, to the other in about twenty-five minutes, if I'm not mistaken. It's got one、mm-hmm. tiny little town that you reach by boat.、Uh, there's no airstrip. It's hard to get to the beaches. It's a bit of a stretch to walk, or there's little boats that go around the perimeter of the island and take you there.、Uh, but it's just, you know, it is the Typical beautiful Aegean island, and it's、uh, whitewashed little houses, tiny little restaurants. Maybe when we were there, I think we only discovered three or four on the whole island. So it's a very very small place, and it's just spectacularly beautiful. And you know, you you go there and you completely join. The village life is for the duration. You know, people are gathering around the square, having something to eat and drink for a very long time. You know, until the middle of the night, and it's just. But it's small, and that's what I love about it.、Mm, that sounds gorgeous. Are you? And you're a big fan of the Greek islands, from the sounds of what you said. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, I love the Greek islands. So you, even when I was growing up, because it's so close to Israel, we used to go to the Greek islands a lot, and、uh, the sea. 
anyone who likes to swim in the sea, I just I don't think it's you can dispute that this is the most beautiful in the wor- place in the world to swim. Yeah. I mean, I haven't been to the Caribbean, so then I guess I haven't been everywhere. But from all the places, all the places where I've had a swim, the Greek islands are by far the the most beautiful and wonderful places to to dip your your body in. So many hidden gems, and actually, speaking of hidden gems, your recipe books always showcase lesser known ingredients those kind of hidden gems and you make them you always make them shine so let's talk about flavor Mm -hmm. i mean flavor's been such an important part of our conversation so far and your new book is called flavor so tell me a bit about the inspiration behind it so i've published two books so far plenty and plenty more that focus Mm -hmm. on vegetables and i haven't published one for a while and there's all these things ideas about vegetable cooking that came out of uh, my test kitchen in Camden in North London and from the restaurants over the last few years and I just felt like I really need another vegetable book out there because there's there's just a lot going on that we haven't really I haven't really spoken about in a book and um so the the idea was to take all the gr- best vegetable dishes that have come out of the test kitchen over the last few years and put them together in a book. And I've collaborated on the book with um, a chef called Ista Belfridge. And Ista has been working for me with me in the test kitchen for four years, and she's got an incredible heritage herself. She's got a bit of Mexico in her, Brazil, Italy, and she grew up in between Italy and London. And um, and she's really an incredible, talented, inspirational cook. We've put the book together with a lot of her ideas in the center. And so there's quite a lot of uh, Mexican, a lot of chilies, a lot of lime, a bit of Brazil, a little bit of Italy, and quite a lot of Asian ingredients, which she also loves. And mm. uh, and it's all about celebrating vegetables and ramping up their flavor and really bringing them to new heights. Uh, through charring and browning and all sorts of interesting techniques. So we isolated three, uh, we broke down the recipes into three main sections. One that deals with the processes that happen when you're cooking vegetables, mm-hmm. uh, charring, browning, infusing, and aging. The other is about pairing, how, what you pair your vegetable with in terms of flavors uh, that really brings them out, uh, sweetness, fat, acidity and chili heat those really ramp up the flavor in the vegetables and the other is about particular produce that really bring out flavor in vegetables mushrooms alliums which are onions and garlics nuts and seeds and sugar or sweetness in general and Mm -hmm. that is the way we broke down the book but it's a really traditional otolenghi cookbook in the sense that it brings new flavors flavor bombs we like to crawl them all sorts of interesting concoctions that you can marinate your vegetable with with that you can uh, drizzle over there's um and and they really really kind of do all these cultural mixes that i love there's a a dish in the book that i i, I love talking about which is we call it the fusion caponata uh, so we make a caponata which is a sicilian dish with of you know aubergines it's a kind of a sweet and sour uh, Italian co- condiment with aubergines and celery and tomatoes and capers and olives. So it's a, it's got sweetness and sour in it. But we actually give it a kind of a slightly Asian twist. So we 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 add some soy, some rice vinegar, 
and then serve it with silken tofu. You know, on the face of it, it sounds pretty weird. But actually, when you think about that, in Italy, you could replace that silken tofu with ricotta, which is another gloriously bland ingredient that soaks flavor so well. It makes total sense. And and we do a lot of these things in the book where we kind of take something which maybe intuitively belongs to one culture, but we mix it up with another culture. So like there's a recipe for hummus, and I've published many hummus recipes in my lifetime. Yeah. But this one has this infusion of uh, lemon, garlic, ginger, and coriander, and, mm. and cinnamon and olive oil, and that becomes the topping for the hummus. Uh, again, something that comes out of the, my collaboration with Ista, which she loves infusions and she loves those kind of cross-cultural infusions. So, yeah, the book is all about celebrating vegetables uh, or anything that grows, you know, I mean, vegetables and grains. Uh, but it's got a very, very loose, flexitarian approach. So, you know, it, it, we use fish sauce on occasion or anchovies or, or Parmesan cheese, mm-hmm. which are not vegetarian. Uh, but they are they bring out the flavor in vegetables so well that we are not shy about using them and obviously when people don't want to use them it's very easy not to use them in the recipes we we offer alternatives was the kind of um environmental aspect uh, a part of your inspiration for bringing out this third book about vegetables or was it more just because you love vegetables um, I've always loved vegetables and I've never preached about vegetables. It's for me, it just, it, I felt, I, I always felt that vegetables are so good in their own right. They don't really need anyone to preach. You just need to show people how to cook them creatively and, and bring out the flavors. But over the last few years, I've become more and more convinced that it's really important for us to focus our diets on eating vegetables, whether you are a vegetarian or, or a vegan or not. It's really, really important to shift to veggie heavy uh diet for for all sorts of reasons environmental animal welfare and for just for the sheer you know health of eating all those vegetables so i'm i'm still very much not a preacher i i don't want people to eat something they don't want to eat but i think they're missing out on something if they're not enjoying the whole array and possibilities that are, that vegetables have have going for them so the the book is really about you know, singing the praise of vegetables and showing there's a recipe. Uh, there's three recipes that, that derive from one se- head of celeriac that you cook in the oven for literally almost three hours until it becomes all brown and caramelized and beautifully, intensely uh, umami flavor. Then we take in mm. that head of celeriac that spent so, so long in the oven and create three completely different dishes with it. To kind of give an example of how versatile vegetables are, one of them is is inspired by a steak, you know, like a steak you have in a French restaurant, which is mm-hmm. what it serves with a Café de Paris sauce. Uh, so it's a kind of a creamy, tarragon-y, capery kind of sauce that you'd often find over a steak, but you put it over this celeriac that spent all that time in the oven and you really don't miss the meat. Uh, or another one is where we take those celeriac pieces and put them uh, into little um, shells made out of cabbage and like it's a taco tacos uh, made out of cabbage and we put um we we put um uh, barbecue sauce over those pieces of celeriac and some goat cheese and some picket chili and that becomes almost like a little celeriac snack um so we, yeah i really like the look of that yeah. one. that looks so delicious so there's really all those things that you can do with with vegetables and the book is just about telling that story and how to ramp up 
flavor and vegetables and make them even more delicious than they they already are. And it's a really generous book, actually, from my experience of, of looking through it. And I'm really looking forward to trying some of the recipes, but there are so many there. Um, yeah. I do think with some books that they're often fairly limited, but I, there's just almost a year's worth of cooking that I could get going on in there, which is, uh, makes it even more exciting. I hope so. Yeah, definitely. That was the point. We really wanted to, sh- to show with it. The thing is, for me, that's, food is all about generosity of spirit. I mean, a book needs to be big and expansive with the flavors, with the number of recipes, with the visuals. That's, it's just always been the case in my, in my view, worldview that that's, that's what cookbooks should, should do. And, and that was the point of uh, this one as well. Fantastic. So let's pause there and return to your travel diaries. Chapter six is your worst travel experience. <laughs> <laughs> my worst travel experience. Well, I've only traveled to China once and uh, it was for a very short visit. I uh, went with a good friend of mine to um, to Vietnam and we spent a glorious week in, in Vietnam, uh, really mostly in Hanoi, just sampling all the wonderful things that this place has to offer culturally mm-hmm. and food wise and then the next stop on our trip was the city of Guangzhou in uh, in China yeah. and i just became terribly sick like really sick mm-hmm. like like i've never been so sick beforehand and it was it was absolutely awful i said i you know we my friend was a designer and he had he was exhibiting some of his um furniture in a big trade show in Guangzhou and that's why we went there and we were in this hotel room in Guangzhou at I don't know 50 60th floor I have no idea but it was very high up above the clouds above the smog and I was sick as a dog you know I was just I had the highest fever and I just you know and I couldn't sleep and all I did was, was I had watermelon juice that they brought to the room because it was the only thing I could bring myself to put in my body and so three or four days that were supposed to be about exploring the city and that part of of, of China were completely lost out of me sitting in hotel rooms. I haven't left the room even once in the whole time that I was there so oh, that was my that was my Chinese experience. <laughs> Well, you need to go back and have a positive one, that's for sure. Oh, I, I definitely do, yeah. Travel is fun when you are enjoy- when you've got where you are unburdened, uh, but when you're burdened by something, traveling can become a real pain because you really want to be home because that's where you deal best with these things. It's like uh, I always uh, think about like my kids are quite young, but when they were really young, uh, like, you know, toddlers, uh we, we 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 tried to go on holiday for with them a couple of times and we still called it a holiday and that was just a completely misconception because we call it, it's just <laughs> not a holiday when you travel with 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 toddlers it now our trips with them bec- look a little bit more like holidays but they really didn't look like anything like it for for many years and we always said like well, actually we're better being at home with those two than actually <laughs> traveling because you know where everything is and you know what you know how you, sh- you should be what you should be doing and all the rest so it took a while before we really started enjoying our uh, holidays with the kids <laughs> so we're on to your final chapter Yotam. that is chapter seven and that is what is the destination that's at the top of your travel bucket list 
Yeah, so I would really love to go to Mexico. I've never been to Mexico. I've almost been to Mexico on a couple of occasions, but it never quite happened. And I have feel like I've known a lot about this place just based on dishes that I've eaten. And also connects us back to the book, to flavor, because there's a lot of Mexican-inspired uh, uh, dishes in the book, like tacos, yeah. uh, like um, a bunch of uh, a couple of desserts, and uh, and and there is that's through Easter. My collaborator was really loved Mexican food and introduced me to all the wonderful things that you could do with Mexican chilies, dried Mexican chilies, and there is a tra- transformational thing that you cre- you can create with chili. And it can also transport you to, 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 to the country where they come from. And I, I feel like I've almost been in Mexico through, through the chilies and through the, yeah. um, the tacos and all of the Mexican inspired dishes in the book, but I haven't quite been there. So I, I really, I really want to go and, and travel, uh, throughout the countries and go to the Yucatan and have tamales and just all the things that I've, I've known about and enjoyed so much, but haven't really managed to, to do yet wonderful well i hope that you make it there when we're able to travel easily again hopefully not too long i know well this is the thing we haven't been able as someone who loves traveling so much i really really miss being able to to travel because because it's just such a it's such a wonderful experience and such and has also given me so much of my inspiration uh inspiration Mm. for what i do well, thank you so much for transporting us somewhere far away from our armchairs today. It's been such a pleasure to chat to you. So thank you so much, Otam. Those were your travel diaries. Thank you, Holly. It was, uh, it was really it was fun to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Oh, that was the truly delightful culinary legend that is Yotam Otolenghi. His new recipe book, Flavor, is out now. I have a copy, I can tell you. Not only is it beautiful aesthetically, but it is chock full of incredible recipes. So I can't recommend it enough. Go out and pick up a copy now. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then if you wouldn't mind taking a couple of seconds to leave a quick review or rating on your podcast app of choice, that really helps other people to discover the podcast and in turn helps me to book guests like Yotan. I really appreciate everyone who's left a review so far. Thank you so much for all of your support. And if you'd like to hear who's going to be on next week's episode, the season finale, then head over to my Instagram. It's at Holly Rubenstein, and I would love to hear from you. And for everything else podcast related, visit thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll speak to you next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers 
just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.